So last week we looked at these two lines in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. So fittingly, we're going to look at uh, the heresies uh, that might be something like the opposite of this. So to claim Jesus the Christ is to root Him in the Old Testament Scriptures. It's a, it's a claim about Him being the Messiah, this awaited um, kingly figure from the Old Testament. And so um, we're going to look at Marcionism today. So we're going to have Marcion and his following, who's going to be essentially denying uh, the relevance of the Old Testament. So I'll cover that. Lauren is going to talk primarily about Arianism. So following uh, someone who is denying Jesus' divinity. And then in between, uh, Matt is going to talk to us about uh, where we got, or kind of the formation, the discernment process of, of the New Testament. So how did the church come to recognize this is, uh, these are our authoritative books, um, and part of the necessity of that is to, to deal with things like Marcionism and Arianism. Um, I saw this, I wanted to, to put it up on the screen, but I don't have, um, I didn't want to bring my computer today, but one of those little memes that, that uh, get passed around, and this one was on heresy, it says, heresy, that special moment when you have greater spiritual insight than the apostles, disciples, apostolic fathers, the church, and the magisterium because you have a Bible that they wrote, compiled, and gave to you. <laughs> so I, I feel like that's pretty right on. Um, so uh, Marcionism, uh, maybe before we get there, a little bit on heresy. Uh, Alistair McGrath wrote a book on heresy called Heresy. Um, and one of the things he's wanting to, to argue or to point out in that book is that um, there's a, a mistaken notion, a kind of bias or against, whatever the word I'm looking for there, a suspicion of orthodoxy, as though um, uh, heresy was this kind of revolutionary movement. It's just as legitimate as orthodoxy, but the powerful elites uh, who represented orthodoxy kind of pushed out the heretics. And in fact, that's like a historical rewrite, um, that, uh, that it's, it's much closer to being the case that, that if anything was kind of representing a revolutionary view of, of uh, God or humanity or religion, it would be uh, orthodoxy. Uh, and the early church, especially those first few centuries as they were kind of working through this, there wasn't like this great, powerful, strong elite like you got post-Constantine. Um, instead, the early church was, was kind of trying to come to terms with what is most faithful to the apostolic witness? Um, what makes the most sense of our core convictions? So maybe Lauren uh, might talk about how Arianism is problematic because it doesn't fit certain core convictions that they have about uh, the nature of salvation. And it doesn't fit certain core practices like we're worshiping this guy. Uh, what happens if he's not divine? So hopefully that's not too much of a spoiler alert, maybe more of a... Uh, of a, a preview of what's to come, but so it wasn't a powerful orthodox elite trying to push out uh, the heretics. Uh, it wasn't as though um, heresy and orthodoxy were both legitimate forms of Christianity. Um, that's, that's kind of a historical rewrite. Uh, orthodoxy represents, I think, the earliest and also the most widespread kind of of the people uh, view of things. Uh, all right, so Marcionism. So Marcion around... Uh, middle of the second century, I think 140 is a number I often see for him. 
Uh, he comes along, I think he's the son of a bishop, is that right? Um, and uh, he is, according to uh, Roger Olson, angry with the Jewish people because uh, the Jews have kicked Christians out of the synagogue. So Christianity is kind of birthed as a Jewish messianic movement. Uh, when the Jews kick them out of the synagogue, kick Christians out of the synagogue, it makes them vulnerable in the Roman world. Being a Jew, you were, you were protected uh, from certain, you had certain rights or certain protections um, because Rome was like, yeah, you guys are kind of weird. You only worship one god, and we really don't like you to only worship one god. We want you to worship all the gods, but you're this strange kind of people. We'll let you do that. Uh, but, but when you're pushed out of the synagogue, as Christians were, it makes them more vulnerable because they get charged with things like atheism, denial of the gods, uh, among other things. So he's a little irritated, and he also doesn't know really how to make sense of... Um, his understanding of Jesus and his understanding of the God of the Old Testament. He thinks the God of the Old Testament is just way too wrathful, way too angry, way too stuck on justice, and this can't be uh, the father of, um, the, the, of Jesus that we get in the New Testament. These, these gods are irreconcilable. So uh, what Marcion uh, essentially does is to say the God of the Old Testament is like a second God. It's not, it's not the real real deal God. Um, this is the God of the Jews. When Jesus comes along and he talks about Father, he's speaking of the real deal God, who's a lot nicer and who's different from the angry God of the Old Testament. So then Marcion um, then says, well, the Old Testament stuff as Christians, we can ignore that. In fact, a lot of the New Testament stuff, what we call the New Testament, a lot of these writings that are circulating in the church, Matthew, no. Mark, not so much. John, no. Luke, yeah. We're going to cut out the chapters 1 and 2 where it's a little too Jewish. Ten of Paul's letters, and that's about it. Um, because he wants to fix the problem uh, of trying to make sense of his understanding of the Old Testament God and his understanding of Jesus. Uh, and from what I read on Marcion, he, he um, doesn't really think through these moves. So... He's trying to fix one problem, and then he creates like 10 more problems. So if you're wondering, well, how did he make sense of, he just didn't, from what I could tell, uh, make sense of some certain problems. So it's like, you know, the lady who swallows a fly, and then she swallows a spider, and then what is it, the cat or whatever comes next. So, you know, he's got a problem with the Old Testament, so uh, he gets rid of it. And then he realizes, oh, there's still some in the New Testament, so then he gets rid of those kind of things. And then he realizes, well, even in Paul and some of Luke, there's problems. So he goes and re-edits those. Uh, and so it just uh, compounds uh, on this problem, uh, which is going to end up leading the church to say, we, we've really got to, to agree on what's, what's authoritative scripture, which is Matt is going to get to here in a few uh, minutes, particularly New Testament scripture. Uh, but a question Lauren left us with um, last week is, do we still need the Old Testament? Maybe what do we miss if we cut out the Old Testament? Is Marcion wrong here? Are we in the Church of Christ, kind of uh, functional Marcionites? Uh, we, yeah, it's authoritative, but we don't really need it uh, anymore. Or is there something that we lose uh, when we reject the Old Testament? Um, me, I'll, I'll say three things to that, why we still might need the Old Testament. Um, and then I'll open it up. Well, I'll get y'all's feedback and then open it up to, to further comments. But one problem if we get rid of the Old Testament is that we have a, 
a, um, a belief system that ultimately makes no sense. You see Marcion kind of chopping and moving stuff away. Um, you have to kind of rewrite Jesus and the apostles. So for me, that's, that's already problematic from the get-go. To claim he is the Messiah and then he's no longer Jewish or the fulfillment of that is it's almost a non-starter. Uh, something else Marcion wants to do uh, is he associates that God of the Old Testament with the God of justice. And Jesus is more like a nice guy. Um, and so part of um, what he's doing then when you get rid of the Old Testament uh, is you may uh, be undercutting some sense of, of holiness and the justice of God, although I think it still shows up in the New Testament. Uh, but his, as he's expanding his editing move, is kind of removing a sense of justice and holiness morality, a vindication of things being set right, and I think that matters. Um, for, uh, for people, I, you know, I haven't experienced any real tragedy or injustice, so I'm speaking somewhat in ignorance, but I still think I'm correct that uh, there still should be, for people who have been victimized, who never see justice in this life, there still should be some vindication for them, uh, and to remove uh, the justice of God creates one of many problems. A third thing is when you take out the Old Testament, you seem to take out a lot of our creation theology, the goodness of creation, uh, that God designed us to bear his image and to represent him uh, in the world. So it's no surprise that Marcion ends up becoming more Gnostic-like or Manichaean, I think, uh, where there is this kind of the body, the physical world is kind of suspect. Is the world really that good? Um, and that's kind of where you go with... Um, rejecting the Old Testament and its creation ideas. Do you have a demigod or a bad god who's creating stuff? And then it leads, of course, to distorted hopes about the afterlife. What's, what are we looking forward to? Being disembodied kind of spirits floating around? Or are we looking forward to the good creation being renewed and restored and having resurrected bodies? Uh, so, as I said, I think Marcion tries to fix one problem and he creates several more. And I think uh, perhaps we do the same thing uh, when we um, ignore or kind of demote the Old Testament. Uh, it fixes one problem, because the Old Testament's difficult at times. Uh, but the wise move is not to reject, but to wrestle with it. Um, um, otherwise, we end up swallowing a spider, and then a cat, and then the dog, uh, and whatever else might go with that. Lauren, Matt? Um, well, I, I think the way we can end up becoming sort of like this is you can see how when we stop reading the Old Testament, we stop having a sense of our mission as God's people connecting with what Israel's mission was as God's people. So then we too can start imagining that our destination is a disembodied afterlife, this ethereal heaven, rather than the renewal of all things. Yeah, and that, that has practical everyday implications, right? So we're not seeking escape, we're seeking to do good here as, as God was wanting. And yeah, I even missed out on Israel uh, when you get rid of the Old Testament. That's good. Another way the church has, has tried to manage itself and, and stay, keep itself honest with regard to Scripture, is something called the lectionary. Um, in, the, in the Book of Common Prayer, for example, in the Episcopal Church, or in the Orthodox Church, on a given Sunday, in a given year, we're going to read these scriptures. This is what's going to be preached on. It's from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and a gospel, and a song. 
And so the lectionary is, is a means by which the church consistently reminds itself that the Old Testament and the New Testament, both the epistles and the gospels and the psalms, mm. are God's word. It keeps the church from forgetting or ignoring yeah. one, it keeps them from obsessing about another one. And so that's a, that's a way you can see the church trying to make sure it maintains its sort of equal respect for all of God's Word, both old and new. Yeah, and if we're seeking to live according to this story, and we don't know what's gone before, it's like entering the movie theater 30 minutes late and you're trying to figure out what's going on. You know, if we don't have that, it, it makes it harder for us to know then how to live within it. Maybe one or two questions before Matt tells us about uh, New Testament canon. One of the yeah. things I like about reading the Old Testament is, well, two things. A, I like to see, it seems to establish what God's intention is. Mm-hmm. And then I like to see his unfolding plan from the beginning through the story of Abraham and how that leads to Israel mm-hmm. and through his his redemption of the people and ultimately through Christ after Christ. And if you dis- disregard that, then it's, it is more like he's sort of still just making it up as he goes along instead of, you know, this, this thing happened in the garden in the fall and this is what I'm doing to fix mm-hmm. all of that. And it would be really sad to miss all the Yeah. 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 One of the things I appreciate about what you said is, you know, it's better to wrestle than reject. However, it is a double-sided point because wrestling with it usually leaves you with no solution. And so, like, part of the reason why it's hard for me to study the Old mm-hmm. Testament is because at the end of the day, all I have are the basics of just trusting that God knows what He's doing. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't make me feel really good when you're wanting to see, when you're seeing all the things that God does with Israel and against Israel's enemies. Mm-hmm. That doesn't jive with how you want, how you're taught to treat your enemies. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, wrestling with it doesn't mean you always get the uh, definitive answer. I think, I think personally, leaning in and wrestling and kind of reading some of the best material out there does provide better answers, um, but it doesn't happen. I mean, it takes, it takes a lot more work than, uh, than just me and my Bible especially when it comes to something that was written so many thousands of years ago in a different culture and uh, different genres. It, it takes, yeah, a lot of humility and the willingness to see the Bible is not something that I can totally always figure out. But it's still uncomfortable. All right, Matt? I'll try not to go too long either. Um, So my job today is to explain a little bit about how we wound up with that thing we call the New Testament. And it's something that most of us, especially if you grew up in evangelical Christianity, you just don't think about it much, right? A lot of us kind of grew up with this illusion. We've never actually believed this, but we almost believe that as Jesus ascended into the heavens and waved by to all the disciples and disappeared in the clouds. Then we looked down and there was a red letter King James Version. <laughs> right? That Peter took straight to Jerusalem and started to preach from. And we all know that's, that's a ridiculous image. 
But in some, sometimes in our practice and how we talk about Scripture, how we imagine the history of the church, we, we sometimes inadvertently act that way. Um, if I had time, I would read from Acts, the 8th chapter, um, because I think the best story to introduce talking about the New Testament canon and how we got it is the story of Philip and the eunuch. You remember how that story starts? I'll read a couple of verses from it. It begins this way. Now, after Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of God, they returned to Jerusalem proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. The emphasis there is proclaiming the gospel. We almost always think of somebody standing there doing this with that book in hand. But the emphasis there is, is that they're talking, they're speaking. There is no collection of Christian scriptures on Pentecost, and there won't be for quite some time. But think about the Philip story. Right? Philip is called. The angel of the Lord says to him, get up and go. He encounters the Ethiopian eunuch reading in the chariot. He knows he's reading because before about 363 AD, people who read in the Western world read aloud. Right? Uh, is it um, Augustine has a story about seeing his mentor Ambrosius in a church with scriptures in front of him, and he realizes that he's reading silently to himself. He says he was reading and his lips did not move. Augustine says, I was utterly astonished. I had never seen anyone read without moving their lips before. So even the process of reading that we think of as a silent, solitary individual act, that was not the way people read. People read aloud. They read aloud because to save expensive parchment and, and manuscript, in the ancient Greek text, they didn't even leave spaces between words, much less punctuation. So the only way you could figure it out that from that long line of letters across the page was to read it out loud and let your ears figure out what was going on. So even when we think about reading Scripture, it was a different world. Well, you know how the story goes. He hears him reading. He asks... Philip asks the eunuch if he understands. The eunuch says, how can I unless somebody explain it to me? He hops in. They're reading scripture, but it's Isaiah. It's the Old Testament. And then Philip explains, it's come true. There was this man. His name was Jesus. He was crucified. He died. He was resurrected. And this is what we're doing now. And then the eunuch says, there's water. What about me? Remember, he has a problem. As a eunuch, he can't be fully accepted into his religion of Judaism. Philip says, no problem. Philip is taken away. He continues his mission, and this is how that episode ends. Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So what we have here is an image of how the gospel spread in the ancient world. It spread faster by mouth and much more slowly by the written word. In other words, as one scholar says, Christianity outran Scripture for the first couple of centuries. The gospel got to people before what we call the New Testament was ever written, much less before it got into their hands, at least in the early church. So how did the New Testament take shape? Well, the 27 books that we now know as the New Testament, or in other words, the Christian scriptures, 
are, are being written over the half century between about 50-ish A.D. and about 100 A.D. So for the first generation or so, the first 20 years after um, Jesus' life, there, there are no Christian writings. There is a gospel, but it's an oral gospel. It's a story being told and proclaimed by Peter, by John, by Philip and the disciples. <coughs> by the century's end, by the end of the first century, churches had begun to write and to share letters, for example, to share writings with each other. And they began to collect them. Especially the four Gospels and Paul's letters. But most of those groups would not have had all 27 the way we do now for lots of different reasons. A, some hadn't, hadn't, had only just been written and hadn't spread hand-to-hand -hand through all the churches and all the regions. Remember, Christianity spreads much faster by mouth than by writing. By about 100 A.D., however, churches in most regions, in the Western Church from Rome west, in the Eastern Church towards the Middle East, and in the, the Egyptian Church based in Alexandria, and the Syriac Church in uh, Palestine, most churches seem to have widely accepted and used 18 of our 27 books, the Gospels, and Acts, and Paul's letters, and though that collection is more or less common among all the churches. No one uses the word canon or canonization yet, but essentially it's a de facto canon. This is a collection of writings that we regard as authoritative because they came from the apostles or from the apostolic tradition. And these are the writings that the early church has always regarded as apostolic and, and to be used, approved for use in the churches. And we all accept that these are true to the gospel as it was first <clears throat> proclaimed. Theologically, this is what we have always believed. That three-point test, those are the three criteria that came to be used to determine what our canon of Christian writings are going to be. Now, some of the later writings, um, some of the shorter writings, didn't immediately come into the canon for lots of different reasons. One, for obviously, they were written late. Others were very short. Think about 2 John. It, it, it came in fairly late to the accepted group of writings. It's interesting because it's written to one person, not to a church. It's really, really short. And it doesn't seem to have been known by, widely by a lot of the churches until later. Or there's Revelation, which is just different. It's not an epistle exactly. It's not a gospel. It's written late. And it also is written on one edge of the empire. It takes a while for people to, to come to terms with that. And there are other books like Hebrews, right, which for a long time, they weren't sure who wrote it. And remember, one of the tests for whether or not we're going to accept a book as authoritative is the apostolic connection. If Paul wrote it, we're good to go. But for a long time, that's a question that keeps it from being accepted by all the churches everywhere. 
So that's from about 50 to about 100. Over the next couple of centuries, from about 100 to about 300, the process of deciding what the authoritative Christian writings are going to be is in process. People are starting to write more and more things in addition to those Gospels, in addition to what Paul wrote, and a lot of it is circulating out there. Some of those things are very popular with the churches. For example, there's something called the Shepherd of Hermas, which many of the churches accepted and seems very orthodox. There's another work that some of you may be familiar with, the Didache. I've read pieces of that, which is really interesting in terms of early church practice and baptismal, baptismal rites, for example. Many churches accepted that as useful. There are others that you've probably never heard of, like the Apocalypse of Peter or the Epistle of Barnabas. Lots of stuff is being written, is, is surfacing and being shared. The church is reading those things, is discussing those things, and is evaluating whether they belong in, that, in what we believe. There are other writings, however, that aren't as widely accepted being written at this time. For example, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of the Hebrews, and the Gospel of Philip. These are also surfaces, surfacing and being read, but these works, instead of conforming to what we already believe, challenge some of what the church has always taught. And they attempt to significantly revise the traditional theology that was current in the first century. And they often seem to accommodate some of the philosophical trends from the Greek culture within which they're being written. Now, while the church takes its time deciding whether or not to put the shepherd of Hermas and 2 John into the canon, so to speak, it responds very quickly to those more challenging works like the Gospel of Thomas. Very quickly and very early on and very strongly, church leaders reject those as not conforming to that three-part test. They either don't have apostolic authority, or if they do claim it, they're new. Nobody's ever read them before. They weren't current with the first century church, and they haven't been accepted. And last but not least, they change what we believe. They don't conform to the theology of the Gospels that we know. By about 300 A.D., there's a functional list of books that the church, especially the Western church, has established as its canon. But they still aren't quite sure. Origen, for example, says this is, how we, this is how we deal with what's being written. There's a category of books that the entire church accepts pretty much unanimously. We all agree that these are our writings. And that would include the four Gospels and Acts, the 13 Pauline letters. By that time, Hebrews is in along with 1 Peter and 1 John and Revelation for a total of 22. So we're getting close to the 27th. There's another category, he says, these are debated or disputed. We're not sure yet. A middle category. 2 John, 3 John, 2 Peter, James, and Jude, all those little ones sort of at the end. Now you know why they're towards the end. 
They're still not sure about those. Some churches think they should be in. Some churches don't. It's still a process. But there's also a category, he says, these are the books we firmly reject. Those are the Gnostic Gospels, including the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of the Epistle of Barnabas, those other works that seem kind of strange and unusual. So that gets us to about 300 A.D. And that's the century between about 300 and about 400 when what we think of as the New Testament sort of becomes set in stone, so to speak, becomes the canon of Scripture. Um, In 367, a bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, publishes a list. He says, these are our writings. And that list contains the 27 that we have still today. So that's sort of a place where you can stick a pin in the timeline and say, okay, this is where our canon is set and closes. He also was one of the first to use the the Greek verb canonization to measure things, to see if they measure up. And that's where we begin to use the term canon or canonicity in the church. There's another writer, Jerome, who's really important um, because he's the one who translates the scriptures, those 27 books, plus some other, plus the Old Testament and the intertestamental works. He's the guy given the task by the Pope of translating the scriptures, which up until that point in time had been in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, all into the standard language of the Western Church, which is now Latin. He produces the Latin Vulgate, which became the Bible for Western Christians until the Protestant Reformation. So his translation has outlasted almost every other translation of Scripture in the Latin. That's Jerome. And he starts that process in the, in the 380s, the 380s. Last but not least, we have Augustine, writing shortly before 400, who also says, these are the 27 writings that we believe in, and it's these 27 and no others. So by that point in time, by the year 400 A.D., the New Testament is set, and all churches, especially in the West, go with those 27 and no more. So let me kind of summarize that, because I know that was a lot of information. It's important to realize that the birthing process of what we now call the New Testament lasted approximately 300 years. But it was deliberate and intentional. It wasn't spontaneous or accidental or random. It was not conspiratorial. It was thoughtful. It was deliberate. No one person set up a list that the church said, okay, we're going to go with your list. The church itself, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made this decision about those writings that they considered to be authoritative. There's two kinds of canon. I'm a literature professor. One canon um, is an open canon. I teach literature. We talk about the, the canon of English literature. And it's a collection of all the great writings that we think of as being inspired in a secular sense, right? If somebody writes a good novel this year, Some people will say it belongs in the canon. We'll wait about 50 years, or more likely 200 years. And if it's still being read, it goes in. In other words, it's a collection of works that are inspired. 
That's an open canon. The Christian canon is a closed canon. It's a collection that's regarded it's a collection that's regarded as authoritative. That's those are the inspired works. There aren't any more. There aren't going to be any new ones. This is what we believe. So it's it's an authoritative closed canon scripture. Second, it's important to remember that the books we now read, as inspired by God, had to earn their way into the canon. They weren't some, uh, the books we don't read weren't summarily kicked out after the fact. It wasn't like we had a bunch and then realized we had too many and decided which ones to keep. Right? Even the ones we kept had to go through a process of being vetted, so to speak, by those three criteria. So everything that we now have has been through a long process of acceptance. And those things that got kicked out were recognized early on as not measuring up. Those three criteria are um, apostolic authority. They needed to have been written by an apostle or, in the case of Mark, for example, who's considered to be a close companion of Peter, someone who was practically an apostle or knew an apostle. The second one was, is this a writing that the early church accepted as being authoritative? And the third criteria is, does this conform to what we've always believed theologically about the gospel, who Jesus is, who God is, and who we are. That's, a, that's the three-point test for what, should, what we're going to keep. Now, those criteria were established very early in the process, not later. The, uh, the books that were rejected, like the Gospel of Thomas, you've heard a lot about that lately for uh, reasons I'll explain in a second. The ones that were rejected were rejected fairly quickly and fairly strongly very early in the process with relatively little disagreement about their being rejected from the church at large. Those books that were accepted, the ones we still read, most of them were accepted very early and they've never been argued about since with a few exceptions like the short ones at the end, 2 John, Jude, James. Now, the purpose of what I've said is to give you some confidence in what we have. Even though the New Testament has a history, we didn't always have one, and, and God didn't drop one on us at one moment in time, God did give us these scriptures. And the church over time recognized God's word, and we move from a gospel that's proclaimed orally to a gospel that is also literally the word of God in textual form which interests me as a literary person. Okay. Let me stop there for questions. Stop there for if questions. we uh, believe in the um, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then why is it that we um, hold so strongly to the closed canon and this apostolic connection? That's a great question. The short answer would probably be if, uh, if Hilton claims to have gotten word from the Spirit and he gives us a new message, how do we, how do we, how do we know whether he's giving us something from the Holy Spirit or just making it up. We test it against Scripture. Scripture is our test of whether what of whether Hilton's vision about saving is true or not. <laughs> but you know whatever I'm, I'm making yeah, it up. Does that make sense? But do you have any uh, 
is there any sort, there's nothing in the text that really says, or is there? I'm going to leave that to the theologians. They have to answer those, those textual questions. I mean, you see what I'm saying? I mean, the tradition came up with the text. So, and the big thing in the, in the indwelling of the miraculous indwelling accompanied their preaching with miracles to attest to their authority. Yeah. John 20 says the miracles were done to help build faith and, and to give authority yeah. so you listen. Yeah, and the writings too are, 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 are a testimony of what we have seen and heard. They're not philosophical tracts. They're, they're all testimonies to what we've seen and heard. And that's why our canon is not, is not like a literary canon. It's not like we're waiting for the next great you know, book by the next great theologian, we're going to add it into our gospel. But it, it, it didn't ever work that way. So Matt, that, that criteria, last criteria, is actually in the book of Galatians. Because even if an angel shows up and gives you a message different than the one you received, you have to reject it. Yeah. And Jude also talks about it. Uh, you know, there's uh, some sort of this debate, and, and Jude said, reject the false teachers and contend for the faith that has once and for all been delivered to the you saints. Know the answer, why do you ask well, I want to You know how he is. In the back. False teachers, false teachers are part of what gives the church a reason to think about what's being passed off as the church's teaching. So that's part of what's happening. It's a, it's about 1045, so you want to go ahead and talk or do you? No, I think we'll wait until the next week. Okay. I think we have a couple other comments. Oh. So the Council of Nicaea was purely about the divinity of Christ. They kind of went to the canon at that point? Um, well, yes. I mean, okay. it wasn't just about that. I mean, it was about how Christ, how the Son is related to the Father. So yes, yeah. Okay. And they're they're reading, they're looking at apostolic witness at that point to make the decision. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of decided. Yeah. 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 Mr. Hearn, Dan Brown says that the reason that we closed the canon is because there were a bunch of men that decided that they didn't want to prove that Jesus was married. Yeah. True. Then it all comes to paint. And Dan Brown is a very popular and successful fiction writer. Um, one of the things that's important to note is, is that um, a lot of what we hear now about the Gnostic Gospels, a lot of our concern, which makes it a very a great fuel for, for fiction writers, is that until about 1945, all we knew about the Gnostic Gospels was, practic was, was reputation and rumor from ancient writings. We only had a few fragments from something called the Gospel of Thomas and some references to it. But in 1945, sort of down in the center of Egypt in a place called Nag Hammadi, some Egyptian um, farmers found in a cave a jar, and in that jar, large jar, they found a collection of ancient manuscripts, which they realized, oh, we can make a bunch of money selling these to Europeans and Americans, but we have to keep it secret. And so over the process of time, they would, they would sell one on the antiquities market. Then a few years later, they got into a fight with each other, these two brothers, and they gave the whole collection to a priest who could take care of them until they sorted it out. And he began to sell <laughs> manuscripts one at a time. Um, one was bought for Carl Jung, the great psychologist, because he had a thing for ancient manuscripts. 
It turns out that this collection, this jar, is, was the first time that we had a chance to actually see those Gnostic writings. And the only complete copy, or more or less complete copy, of the Gospel of Thomas that anybody had seen since the third century was in that jar. There were about 13 books, they call them codices, that were in there. And they're all Gnostic-ish in origin. And those are some of those weird names I mentioned, the Gospel of Mary Mag- or the, you know, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Truth. Right? What's interesting about them is that it, it, nothing canonical was in that jar. Everything in that jar is extra canonical. And so what most people think is, oh, when it became clear in the 300s that those aren't going to be in, and when Athanasius says, these are the ones we believe, you can't read those, the people who had that collection got scared and put them in a jar and buried them. And that's where they stayed until... Um, we didn't really know what the collection was until the 1960s. So that's very recent. With what Randall brings up when the Da Vinci Code came out 15 years ago or whatever, there was this, this unease, and I think in part the unease is because we have functionally acted like the Bible did fall out. You know, Jesus ascended, there we have the Bible, and we've, we've left that history almost under question. And we thought, I think the idea was like, we're protecting the Bible if we pretend it doesn't have a history. And instead what we did is we made ourselves very vulnerable because when it's very obvious we had a history, someone else came around and rewrote that history and it just threw everything off rather than saying, no, this is, this is our scripture, it has a history, and yet we still have reason for regarding it as authoritative. Um, not because it fell from the sky, but because we trust the work of the Spirit through the church at large to recognize what matched the tradition. Uh, and that, that would have been so much more helpful because then Dan Brown would have probably not even had a bestseller. Could have been like, oh, that's interesting, but that's not, that's not troubling. That's not going to give me a faith crisis because I know there's a history. There's two ways to look at it. One is you might think, oh, it, it wasn't instantaneous. We had to wait 300 years for them to figure it out. The other side of that is they, they took 300 years to make sure that what they saved was what should be saved. We can't get out of here without uh, public confession of the okay. agreed... Uh, Let's do this. Um, you ready? We'll start. You ready? You start. Yeah. I believe God the Father, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you all. Lauren will lead us uh, <laughs> next week. Yeah. Make, make that announcement, God.